Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are talking about uh, Skyclad's album from 1994, Prince of the Poverty Line. An album that I knew nothing about before right, we started recording. A band that I'm assuming you know you knew almost nothing about as yep, well, yeah. Absolutely. Uh they really did fly under most people's radar outside of Europe. Within Europe they were known, uh, but they never broke America, and frankly, they didn't break it that big in Europe, uh, which is a, a real shame. But we'll talk about that later. Uh and about because they are still going, um, but in a, a very different form. Yeah. Um, so before then, let's go through uh, our usual sort of follow-up and housekeeping. First of all, uh, new patrons since the last episode. We have uh, Paul Hayes, Justin Pack, Joe Herbers, and Daniel Hyatt. Thank you all. Not sure Welcome. how many of you are new listeners and how many of you just decided to join so you could uh, nominate in the listeners poll, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that happens. It's fine. Um, yes, welcome all. And remember, everyone else, if you want to support us and take part in things like the listeners poll, you can support us at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Um, right. One of the first things I want to follow, actually, there's no follow up from the episode itself. Uh, we managed to get through it without making any terrible mistakes, which makes a nice change. Um, <laughs> So instead, I know, right? It's <laughs> I know. pretty good. So instead, I want to... Uh, it's because of your deep knowledge of Motley Crue, you see. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, if there's one thing I'm known for. But that's not even a joke. deep <laughs> knowledge of... Uh, although, I, I, we have some resident experts, as we'll see we in do. the feedback, for we sure. We do. This is true, yeah. Uh, but the first thing I want to address is we had an email from uh, listener Ian Couples, who asked why we are not on Stitcher, because he can't access us directly through iTunes. Um there are two answers to this. The first or two reasons for this. The reason we're not on Stitcher is because uh, Stitcher basically insert their own adverts into, they reprocess your audio and insert their own adverts uh, as pre-roll and possibly end-roll as well. Um, and you have to like sign up to their premium program to actually earn any money from that. Otherwise, the money just goes all straight to them. And it's a whole, it's a shit show, frankly. Uh, I, I'm against it in general. Um, so I'm afraid we will, unless Stitcher change their policies, we will not be on Stitcher anytime in the foreseeable future. However, the second part of this is that you don't need to access us directly through iTunes. iTunes, or rather Apple Podcasts as it's now known, is just a directory. Like it's just, it's, it, all it is, is a directory of RSS feeds. The podcast, we host the audio files and we host the RSS feed that iTunes reads and that anybody can read. So you don't need to go through iTunes to access us. We're also on the Google Play store. So, I mean, if you have an Android phone, you know, or something, you can just listen to us through there. But even if you're on iOS, all you need to do is uh, go to our site, get the RSS feed um, URL, which is, you know, we it's, we link to it directly on the, on the site and put that into your podcast player. Um uh, a player such as Overcast, which is the one I use by Marco Arment, uh, that uses the iTunes directory. You can actually just search for us in Overcast because that uses the iTunes directory itself. And there are other players that do that as well. So, Have you uh, used the new Google Podcasts app? Because it's pretty good. Oh, no, I haven't. I haven't. I'm yeah. not an Android. I don't have any Android devices or anything so, at all. So I'm completely unfamiliar with that. Yeah, so you can you should be able to just search for us, and I'll double check that today. But you should be able to just search for us on the Google Podcast. Actually, you can because I subscribe to us on the Google Podcast oh, app. So yes, yeah, so we are there. <laughs> so uh, basically, Google put out their own podcast app, and it's very simple. It's very straightforward, and it's really clean. And mm -hmm. I'm digging it so far. So we're on there. 
Excellent, excellent. And yeah, as I say, you know, if you have your own podcast player of choice, just go to the website, which is thrashedoutpodcast.com. Uh, and there is a link right in the headers, you know, with alongside things like the Patreon links and what have you, is a link to our RSS feed. Uh, yep. And just just copy that link, put it into your podcast player. There you go. You know, you're subscribed. Um, which I do a lot with uh, the, my previous podcast app, which is Podkicker. That was right. the one I was using on Android before I started using Google Podcasts. And I still have them both. But yeah, that one is super easy to plug in RSS feeds into. Yeah. And, and as I say, just about any podcast player on iOS as well. Not Stitcher, because that's their own app that, that uses their directory and everything, but a general podcast player. Uh, such as I think Pocket Casts, as well as Overcast and things like that, and even the Apple Podcast Player. I think you can just plug your own RSS feeds into, so you can do that. You don't need to go directly through iTunes, but we are not going to appear on Stitcher unless they drastically change their policies. Sorry. Yeah, they are the man that we're fighting against <laughs> yeah, with exactly. the spirit of Thrash It Out. So. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so that's that's all the follow up I had. So Brian, take it away with what's been going on on the Facebook group. Yeah, before I do that, I also wanted to give a quick plug to Dreamland, the Retro Blasting podcast. Oh, Melinda, yes. who is one of our community members, she hosts a podcast. Her and Aaron invited me onto the uh, Dreamland podcast again about a week and a half ago to talk about Trick or Treat, one of my all-time favorite B-horror movies from the 1980s. It's from 1986, and boy, we just had an amazing discussion about that movie. It, it stars uh, Skippy from Family Ties, if you have never seen that movie. Um, but it's basically about a 80s rock god that comes back from the dead, summoned through listening to his music backwards. So it basically plays into all of the stereotypes of the the whole, um, you know, satanic panic and the PMRC and all that kind of stuff, but also is sort of mocking them. Ozzy Osbourne has a cameo in it. Gene Simmons has a cameo in it. And in the movie, Ozzy actually plays a uh, a preacher who is speaking out against metal music. And he does an amazing job. It's really good. If you've never seen it. Um, it's kind of light on the gore, but it's the soundtrack was created by Fastway. So they put out an album that is essentially the entire soundtrack to this movie. And it is fantastic. Like if you're a metal fan, if you're a horror fan, it's like a peanut butter cup of awesome. And we talked about it for two hours. So thanks to Melinda. I will put a link in the show notes for the episode, but you can go to retroblasting.com. And you'll see a link to the Dreamland podcast, and it's the latest episode. But I will put a link in the show notes. So that was super fun. I have never seen that movie. Uh, and no way. Yeah, no, I've never seen it. Uh, and I'm now, I'm now I'm wondering if I should. You should see it simply because the Fastway soundtrack is phenomenal. I mean, you could just Google Fastway Trick or Treat and you'll see the album come up. But um, I don't want to spoil any of the stuff we talked about, but there's there's a lot of cool trivia about that movie. Mm -hmm. And it really does kind of tackle head on some of the stereotypes about metal. It's really, it's an interesting movie. I mean, it's a classic 80s B-horror movie, but you should, uh, the the opening scene alone, I think is worth a watch. So yeah. I'm looking at it on Wikipedia. Glenn Morgan and James Wong were uncredited writers on this movie. Yeah, well, and uh, that, that alone is enough to make me want to check it out because, you know, those guys famously, their episodes of the X Files were some of the best and most fondly remembered episodes, you know, some absolute well, classics. So, yeah, I might, you know, have to go and check this, this out. could be, you could probably make a one hour cut of this movie that could be an episode of the X Files. You could oh, work right. Mulder and Scully into it. <laughs> um, 
You actually could. It would be, that would be interesting. So yeah, totally worth. If you've never seen it, it's a lot of fun. Oh man, Gene Simmons is in it as well. Jesus. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm yeah, he's, he's got a very <laughs> small part in that, but yes, it's uh, it's totally worth seeing. And it ended up we ended up talking about other movies that are sort of somewhat related, share parallel themes. So by the end of it, we we hit on a couple of other movies that if people haven't seen, they should absolutely go and check out as well. But uh, Yes. So thanks again to Melinda. That was super fun. And we, of course, left that as well, talking about other shows that we want to do in the future. So fantastic. um, So that was great. And then speaking of, uh, you know, the the community, huge, huge uh, page of comments on the Motley Crue episode. It really was a massive long thread, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first 15 of them, I think, are Phil, (laughs) basically. (laughs) It's funny because it's true. (laughs) I'll just read one of his. He says, regarding the original album cover, it was an all-black cover with the pentagram that was shiny, which you uh, talked about the spit polish piece. But he said you could only see it angled properly in the light. Um, But he also posted a picture of what the original back of the album looked like because we were talking about whether or not those four portraits were the front of So he posted that on there. Um, what I love about the feedback on this episode was that it was it was a lot of it kind of fell in the same vein as the Twisted Sister episode of like, yeah, a lot of people who just kind of uh, dismissed Motley out of hand, but gave them a listen and and at least were able to see something in this that kind of lent some credence to them being thought of as, metal, as a huge yeah. part of that landscape. So. Uh, Joe said, saw Motley Crue open for Ozzy in early 84, one of my first concerts. They were the perfect opener for Bark at the Moon. I think the title track was the only signal out when I had liked the video for Livewire. They were great, so I bought the album. I wasn't as into them later, but they were always a cut above most hair bands of that era. Uh, and that, that was a, sec- a sentiment that was echoed quite a bit. Christian said, that was a wicked pod. Not the biggest Crue fan, but a few songs have always been on my music library. I tend to be more on Anthony's side of preferring their faster stuff but I really love the slow beat of Too Fast for Love. I might be misremembering uh, a Metallica fact, but I'm sure I remember Hetfield or Lars saying that they heard the sound of Dr. Feelgood and that made them beef up their own sounds when they went into the Black Album. Uh, I might be right. wrong, and- so don't quote me on that, but we we then kind of delved a little bit into the Bob Rock thing because he came off of uh, Dr. Feelgood to... Right, well, that was it was slightly misremembering because, yeah, what happened was Lars heard Dr. Feelgood and went, right. this sounds amazing, especially the drums. Um, and, yeah, basically said, who produced this? Bob Rock, we should get him to produce our next album. Cue lots of arguing about, we don't, we're Metallica, nobody produces us, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, yep. you know, obviously they did. And the rest is literally metal history. <laughs> it is. I mean, in, in I have certainly had not great things to say about Bob Rock's influence on Metallica in the past. But if you look at him from a producer standpoint and you look at the bands that he worked with and what happened when he worked with them, I mean, there, that is uh that's a, it, he, he was a star maker. Yeah. The numbers don't lie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also from an engineering point of view, uh, just, and I'm not sure, you know, I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure there was another engineer working on the Black Album, but obviously, producers still going to have an influence on that. The sounds that he was able to get, you know, love or hate the Black Album, it is, it has an immensely huge sound compared to, you know, Metallica's earlier stuff. Which, without a doubt, you know, we spoke about it before. We love the sort of raw sound of albums like Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets, but 
the Black Album just sounds huge. You put that on a decent stereo and literally just the sound blows you away. Like I say, love or hate the songs, but the the sound is enormous. Um, And that is mostly down to Bob Rock. So you've got to give him credit for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Christian, you were on the right track with that, and uh, and yeah, there is a big story behind that. So, uh, Brian said, I have not gotten through the episode yet, but I'm at the point where you're talking about the album cover, and those photos are taken from the gatefold of the album. Uh, the back cover was another band shot, which is the one that Phil right, posted but, as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Todd said, ill-advised covers of Helter Skelter is a sin many musicians who should have known better from this era are guilty of. Pat Benatar, U2, Susie and the Banshees all did covers of this song, too. Better vocalists in each case, and Susie at least tries to do something different with the song, but none of these versions works any better than Motley Crue's, in my humble opinion, and could easily be cut from their respective albums. I have Uh, heard the Susie version. I've never heard the—I can't even imagine U2 covering Helter Skelter. I mean, can you— I, no, I, I might have to go and seek that out just to see what a train wreck it is. <laughs> uh, Scott said, great pod as always, uh, as we've come to expect. I can confirm having been there at the time that this was considered metal. He said hair metal to be sure, but yeah, metal. He said, I did enjoy listening to it after a long time in preparation for the episode. And I find myself agreeing more with Anthony on this one, especially on Red Hot. Totally a Judas Priest song. If you change the voice to Rob's, never saw it this way. Thanks for that. But then I thought the pentagram was just laughable, considering the music. It still holds true. And yeah, uh, listen to the original of Helter Skelter. What a great song. Also, love your interaction with one another, the jokes, etc. It gets better every episode. Great stuff. Oh, thank you. Isn't that nice? Uh, and Lenny said uh, the Snape gif moment of, I don't like the Beatles. He posted oh, yeah. <laughs> another a gif of Sheldon saying what is happening. So yeah, I feel like every time we peel back the onion of uh, the, the particular pieces of our musical taste there's always there's always something to dive into there i think people are always generally there's nobody ever posts that when i say i don't like a band i think they're more shocked when you say you don't like a band because you know if there's one thing that this podcast has shown it's that you are generally much more open-minded about uh you know certain avenues of rock music than i am uh and so i think that's probably why people are surprised because despite that there are some you know quite big avenues such as the Beatles, um, <laughs> which, yeah, no, you, you know, can throw Led Zeppelin in there too. And, I don't know if I mentioned that and before. Nirvana. But. Yeah. Which you just sort of like, let's just drop in casual conversation. And they're like, boom, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Although I will say like, and we talked about this during the episode that Helter Skelter from the Beatles, that's a heavy song. Oh yeah. 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 It really, it really does uh, deserve the credit that it got for its influence on heavy metal because it was, I didn't, when I went back and listened to that, when we were recording the, after we recorded the episode, uh, it, it was just a lot heavier than it's I It's really not what being, you so. expect from the Beatles, is it? Yeah. 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 Uh, Jack said, there are two things that put me off of bands quicker than anything else. Cheese and sleaze. He said, I really don't like Motley Crue. When Brian said, I'm prone to hyperbole. I knew I was in for a lot of disagreements with Mr. Latendry throughout the episode. Uh, that's just my tagline now. I'm prone to hyperbole. Uh, I, I really enjoy these <laughs> episodes where you talk about, yeah, it, it, it really is. I mean, it's not just in music, it's in everything. Uh, you should hear the way you listen to that trick or treat episode. Uh, I actually really enjoy these episodes where you talk about a band or album. I cannot stand because I find it fascinating how Brian manages to find positivity in everything, even Nikki's bass playing and Tommy's drumming. Great episode with some interesting discussion, but just reassured my loathing of the crew. 
Um, well, yeah, I think I, as as we as we mentioned in the episode, you know, it's clearly Tommy Lee and Nikki Six are capable of doing more complex stuff because oh, they sure. they occasionally do. You know, there are moments where they break out much more complex uh, rhythms than the straight four on the floor stuff that most of the songs consist of. They just clearly choose not to. You know, it's obviously a conscious choice. And again, you know, you can like that or not, but I think it's inarguable that they are clearly good musicians. Well, like Neil Peart or something, you know, they like until he breaks out his drum solo, you'd never know. Um, You know, these guys that like, they're capable of so much more, but for reasons of taste and songwriting and stuff, they keep it simple. Right. Uh, just a few more, because so many people commented on this, and I, I do want to try and get a bunch in here. Uh, Greg, let's see. Greg said, finally, a Crew album. Uh, and like many, I was surprised Anthony liked it as much as he did. I didn't get into Crew till Theater of Pain. My local rock club back then used to play Smoking in the Boys' Room regularly, which is what brought them to my attention. Of course, I bought and listened to the back catalog and stayed with them up until the Circus of Sins tour, by which time Vince Neil's voice was shot to hell, and it was a blessing every time he turned the mic to the crowd for their sing-along. Uh, I always thought Shout was a very short album, and to have a couple of points of my own to add about it beyond Brian and Anthony's ex- excellent dissection of it, I was surprised that no one mentioned Bowie's Future Legend intro on the Diamond Dogs album as a comparison, particularly given the whole post-apocalypse theme of Diamond Dogs and Crew's Mad Max stage gear at the time. I also can't hear Crew's Knock 'em Dead Kid without wondering if they heard the Trooper track of the same name from the late 70s. I'm not accusing them of plagiarism. The two songs are very different, but I can't help but think when they heard the chorus of the Trooper song and then thought, we can do something like this. I'm not surprised by Anthony's choice of Skyclad, given the the uh, walkier Sabbat, uh, Sabbat, right? Sabbat, is yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, Link, and look forward to giving them a re-listen as much as I, as I much prefer them to Sabbat. Uh, let's see what else Phil did. Uh, by the way, I don't want to shortchange the 27 comments that he left on this, but he did <laughs> said, uh, he said, uh, I couldn't help but post my live thoughts as I listened to this episode. This is definitely my new favorite TO episode. And I can't believe that I actually got some positivity from Anthony. And I nearly stroked out when Brian said the lyrics and vocals were, and I quote, terrible. He said, <laughs> uh, so he said that we nailed it. I can't even really disagree with some of Anthony's criticism. Great knowledge about the band in general and the album. Your Motley Crew cred is deep. So um, that's the first time great... anybody's ever said that about me. <laughs> right. Uh, lots of great commentary on this album. I mean, this this is a great example of why we do the show in the first place. Because here's an album that clearly I would say a majority of the hardcore metal fans that listen to the show, probably not that into, but it generated some great discussion. It was fun to talk about and it sort of shines a light on an album that may have been overlooked by some people, especially who prefer the harder stuff. So it does my heart good when we have a thread that has like just tons and tons of comments in it like this. Yeah. Well, and as we've said before, and also very, you know, all kind of civil and positive, even people who didn't like it, you know, nobody's leaping, totally. on, nobody's jumping on each other for, you know, in flame wars and stuff. Um, and yeah, I agree. It's, that was clearly one of our most commented about, uh, episodes, even discounting, as you say, Phil's 27 <laughs> comments in the thread. Um, people clearly have an opinion about it. And that's the thing that's, you know, as, as we've said before, that's why we do the show. Everybody has an opinion about music and uh, you know metal fans especially have strong opinions about uh in metal albums and whether they like or dislike or whatever and that's why we do it that's what's fun 
that's what we you know used to do in the record stores and in in our school playgrounds or you know our role playing groups totally. or whatever you know or at metal clubs uh you know when we were younger and frankly this is a way for us to sort of keep doing it now that we are old and gray <laughs> well and the cool thing is like you know you could absolutely not like motley crew at all and if you hadn't listened to any of their stuff and had dismissed them out of hands at least now you can go back and say yeah no i gave that album you know i gave Give it a one try, of their yeah. most popular albums a good try and it just wasn't for me and sure. now you you sort of have that in your back pocket so uh well, yeah and, so people are still commenting real, on it that's the real cred isn't it you know as we've said before to be able to say look you know i actually have listened to this and i gave right. it a good go and fair enough you know but it wasn't for me that's uh the more important thing i think you know certainly for me i feel it's much more important to be able to say that than to just dismiss something out of hand because you've never even heard it uh right and say, oh, well, that's obviously crap. And it's like, well, how do you know? How do you know if you've never heard it? Well, and as as I get older, I feel like the part of my metal fandom that has grown exponentially is the desire to have my mental catalog be as complete as possible. So I welcome, yeah. you know, people kind of introducing me to bands, which is another great thing about our Facebook group is that people do that all the time. I love discovering albums or entire bands that I am just not familiar with. And then now having a frame of reference, because then I can relate that to everything else that I'm listening to. And that's, um, that's just really gratifying, which yeah. is a great, um, sort of segue to the album that we're talking about today, which I did not have a frame of reference for at all. Right. Right. Which you had no context for. So yeah, just before we get onto that, we'll remind people that the uh, Facebook group is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, it is a closed group just because Facebook doesn't allow open groups anymore, but we approve everyone who, you know, applies for membership basically. And then as long as you're not a dick, you can stay a member. Uh, that's how it works. So yeah, go along, join in the discussion and uh, we'll all have a good time. So yeah, Skyclad, a band that... As I say, I'm pretty sure you, I mean, had you even heard of them other than occasional mentions by me? Well, I think I mentioned, yeah, no, well, I mentioned in the last episode, I had heard of them, but they were, I had no frame of reference for them. Like, right. I, I certainly didn't know that they are looked at as this sort of folk metal pioneer band. Oh, yeah. They're basically it, one it, of the first ever folk metal Right. Bands, yeah. Like, I had, so, so as far as their place in the metal landscape, I had no frame of reference for that at all and had definitely not heard this album before. Every song was brand new to me. Well, folk metal now, see, folk metal, when they began it in the 90s, along with there was an Irish band, Kruichan, uh, uh, who I think were also one of the first folk metal bands around. Um, and nobody else was doing anything like this. And frankly, nobody else did anything like this for quite some time. It wasn't really until the 2000s that quote unquote folk metal really took off. But then it happened mostly in other countries, mostly in other European countries, especially. Uh, there is a remains a serious dearth of English folk metal bands, you know, ironically. Um, and the ones that do exist in those other countries, of course, play their own folk music combined with metal so as a result there is still nobody around that sounds anything like skyclad they remain pretty unique um and especially there was a period in the uh early to mid 90s where they released three albums um the album before this jonah's ark this album prince of the poverty line and then the next album silent whales of lunacy uh and those three albums are kind of the 
the high point. They're the real peak of Skyclad's output. Um, and they're all really good. I chose this one for reasons that I, I'll explain shortly, but all three of those albums are really good. And nothing else sounded like them at the time, and nothing else sounds like them now. And it's a bit weird. Uh, that, I agree with you. You know, <laughs> like a band And that- I wonder, like one of the things that, is it because of the fusion of folk and metal? Like, a, be, because just as a general thought to this album, when I think of folk music, I always think of D&D. Like that's, I, I think of like tavern music, like right. that's that's where my brain goes to. But there is a, there is a lightness to folk music that I think offers a sharp contrast to metal. And when you put those two things together, I think it's easy on the first listen through to be like, meh, I don't know how well those two things fit together. And so I, I think it's just, at least for me, like it took a couple of listens for those two styles to mesh. But once they meshed, I was like, why are there not more of this? Like why? Right. Like it definitely did. But but it seems like this sort of uh, mashup is something that could be dismissed as sort of light or silly. Oh, and it, it was many times. I mean, that's another thing. A lot of the modern folk bands, frankly, are more lighthearted. You know, yeah, I'm uh, thinking the of that of pirate band that's pirate out there metal now. bands, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know that sort of thing, and even uh, Amon Amarth. I mean, that that's not sure. folk metal, but you know, there's an element of it. It's kind of like folk death metal, you know. Right. Like it, it, yeah. yeah, you know, there is an element of it there because of the stuff that they sing about and stuff, and yeah, and the For Viking sure. metal movement in general. But as I say, that's all, you know, that's all non-British, uh, and whereas obviously British folk is very much based around sort of Celtic. Uh, lyrics, uh, right. but lyrics. Sorry, I mean melodies and uh, you know fiddles and things like that and harpsichords stuff, which you don't hear a lot in metal, uh, except in doom. Funnily enough, um, but they were dismissed quite often as, and it didn't help that in their early uh, incarnations, and this is almost undoubtedly Valkyrie's influence. Uh, they dressed like extras from like a Robin Hood TV show. <laughs> um, yeah. So the D&D label really did, even though they didn't sing about that sort of thing, you know, it really, and also Sabbath, but, Walkie's previous band, were a D&D sort of lyric style band. So all of those no things mistake. kind of You conspired. had me at D&D. Oh, sure, like, sure. I, that, That's a selling point for but me, it, but I can also see how for others it is not. Exactly, exactly. And they even did a European tour with Manowar. And uh, funnily enough, uh, Chris Mayowich, a uh, listener who has all the old uh, Kerangs, when I announced that this was going to be the homework, he sent me the review of this album from Kerrang, which again, I remember reading at the time. Bless him. Thank you, Chris. And uh, one of the things the reviewer points out in there is that they released this album off the back of a European tour with Manowar. And he's like, that was a terrible mistake because they were clearly put on, I mean, you shouldn't turn down a tour in Europe, but at the same time, they were clearly put on there because people looked at their image and went, oh, you know, fantasy nonsense, Manowar all goes together. And yet, in terms of attitude and tone, the bands couldn't be more different. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, that they Skyclad had a history throughout their whole career of being very, very misunderstood, which is a real shame. So uh, a bit of history: they were formed in 1990 in Newcastle, I think, by yeah Martin Walkier, who of course formerly was the um, vocalist and lyricist of Sabbath, uh, and Steve Ramsey, ex Pariah, uh, who were a death metal English death metal band. Uh, they were then joined by another ex-Pariah guy, Graham English, on bass. Uh, Keith Baxter on drums, sadly died about 10 years ago. Excellent drummer. 
Um, and then they added Dave Pugh on guitars, who I think, as I recall, was a friend of Keith Baxter's. And then finally, the first album, they used keyboard fiddle sounds. Uh, and then after the first album, which I think was Wayward Sons of Mother Earth, they uh, recruited a full-time violinist, fiddle player, keyboardist person, and that was a woman called Fritha Jenkins. And for a few albums, that was their stable lineup. Um, but like I say, because of Walkier's previous band, Sabat, and because of his influence over their image, and because they were very overtly playing basically pagan metal, and they advertised themselves not as folk, because folk metal as a term didn't really exist. So they called themselves pagan metal. And obviously that brings with it certain connotations, especially in the 90s, you know, the Gaia theory and all that sort of stuff. And like I say, they dressed like extras from some medieval play. And, <laughs> you know, the, the media just looked at them and went, what the hell is this? Um, yep. And those first albums as well were quite thrashy, much more thrashy than this. Like they got less thrashier as they went along, although the album following this is actually less folk and more metal. And they started to sort of veer into very overtly much more metal, less thrash, but more straight metal kind of sound uh, for the next few albums, which is again, why I picked this album because it's kind of, it's kind of the perfect mesh of, you know, there's just enough metal, but also just enough folk compared to, you know, the previous albums were more, folk and more thrash and the next sure. albums were more straight ahead metal and less folk so they were still good but you know this is kind of the perfect melding of the two and yeah as i say the media just did not know what the hell to make of them uh which is a real shame it really is and uh, because it this is just such an interesting album and it's got so many different styles in it. It's just, oh, it was a fascinating really listen. Does, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a loose concept album as well. I will, uh, uh, just to continue the history or round it off, I should say, I should say that I first came across them on MTV, Headbangers Ball, you know, which we've all sadly lamented, uh, you know, in many, many episodes. Um, there was a video, and I sent you a link to this video. There was a video you did, of Thinking Aloud, right? A song called Thinking Aloud, which was for the title, not the title track, sorry, but the first single from their previous album, Jonah's Ark. Um, and I watched it and I was like, okay, that was a bit odd. Hang on a second. Isn't that Martin Welk here from Sabbath? What the hell is this? Um, and of course there's no Wikipedia in those days. You know, we had the internet, but there's no Wikipedia or anything like that. So I went to the record store, um, and looked for Skyclad and sure enough found, uh, the album Jonah's Ark and an EP they'd released, uh, in between the th second or whatever album it was and Jonah's Ark, which is called Tracks in the Wilderness. Um, that's the one that's got the cover of Emerald on it, which I've also mentioned before. And I looked at the back and sure enough, there it is, Martin Welkier with a bunch of other people whose names I didn't recognize. And they're all in some like, you know, weird diorama that looks like a medieval hut, uh, but where, just to, to wearing kind frilly of shirts there. and leather trousers. And I'm like, what? So I bought them. I bought them and I took them home. Isn't that something that you miss is that that whole sequence of events that you just talked about, like seeing the video on MTV, recognizing one of the band members, having to go down to the record store to inquire more about it, and then picking up an album like you knew absolutely nothing about. Like that. I, I that do, whole, but I'm I'm wary of falling into nostalgia. You know, I don't Yeah. It's I I I'm I miss it because that's how I grew up. I'm not necessarily sure that it's any better. For kids these days, you know, who sort of click around on YouTube and find stuff. Well, so I don't know. And the reason that that I missed that, and not necessarily that um, 
that process, but the discovery element of it. Because I think that when you went through that process, you that also contributed to the idea that you were going to invest your money, first of all, but then your time and energy to really dive into that album. That's true. And yes. pay a great amount of attention to it because you had found that. Like you had you had made that connection, you had you had went, you had sought it out and you had found it and you were going to now spend some time with that album and then, you know, sort of form your opinion of it. And and that's the piece that I think I think because it's so easy to search around and go on YouTube and discover stuff, it just contributes to what we've talked about before, which is the I'm not actually giving this my full attention because it's so easy for me to get. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but again, you know, I'm kind of, I'm always wary of sort of, sure. you know, things were better in my day, but it is, it's a very different experience that, you know, it's absolutely true. It's very, very different now to how it was then. And that's partly because, yeah, we couldn't find these things out easily. <laughs> we just had well, and to Wikipedia blunder was about the in the dark, owner. you know. <laughs> like the record store yep. owner was Wikipedia and, yeah, and was and the catalog. Thank, <laughs> and thank goodness that, uh, the guy who I've mentioned it before, the hour price records in my town where I grew up, thank goodness that the guy who managed that store, uh, you know, he wasn't a metalhead, but he knew, he knew enough, you know, he was, he liked his rock music and he knew enough and he read the music papers and stuff. So thank goodness that he, uh, knew about this sort of stuff. And because he was also the DJ at our local alternative night, I knew him. Uh-huh. Um, I actually didn't ask him about this because I walked in and found these albums. So I was like, oh, okay, well, this is clearly, yes, I was right. This is him. These are obviously the the albums that they're promoting at the moment. So I will just, I'll just buy them. Um, but if I hadn't been able to find them, then yes, I would have, I could have asked him. I could have gone up and said, hey, so I saw this thing on TV is he in a new band? What's going on? And he probably would have known. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I had no clue. So as I say, I just saw this like, okay, medieval metal. All right, let's give it a try. Um, it helps because I have uh, my family, I have Celtic roots. So, uh, and I almost actually went to university to do Celtic studies, which is a whole other story in and of itself. Um, so, you know, that kind of, oh, okay, so f- fusing Celtic folk with metal, why not? Let's give that, a, you know, that kind of intrigued me um, and maybe made me more amenable to it. I don't know. But I think it also helped that, like I said, Jonah's Ark is is a really good album. Uh, I didn't pick it for this one because, like I say, it's more, it's it's a bit more uneven and it's more folk and a bit more thrashy and just not as kind of a well-rounded an album. Um, but it right. is still, you know, it's still pretty good. And it was certainly good enough that I was like, when this one came out, I just bought it the moment it came out. Uh, the moment I saw that in Kerrang that it was available, I was like, right, okay, well, down the record store I go and I'm going to buy that because, you know, how could it be, even if it's only as good as the previous album, that's good enough for me. Absolutely. So Martin Welkier, like I say, ex-Sabbath, uh, he... Uh, kind of renowned for lyrics and wordplay. Um, and uh, that really shines through on, on all of Skyclad's albums. I mean, it did on Sabbath's albums, but on Skyclad, he really went to town uh, with his lyrics on puns and satire and oh, lots dude. and lots of lyrical wordplay and stuff. Uh, and yeah, it's a really kind of, this is why, because they've carried, they've continued without him for the last, oh God, 15 years or so now. And it's just not, the same and it, it you know it's so much of my anyway image of the band is tied up with his voice and his lyrics uh that yeah he kind of epitomizes what skyclad is to me well and, and we talked uh, about this 
I think on the last episode about like how I, when I listen to music, there's kind of like I turn up or turn down the volume in my head on different pieces of the music. We came off an album in Motley Crue where the lyrics were forgettable uh, at best, right? And then we come into this album where, to me, the lyrics are this album yeah. for me. Yeah, like yeah. I was consistently blown away by the lyrics on this album. Like, I can't tell, like, I would stop the song and I would pull up the lyrics and I would read through and I'm like, holy crap. Like, which is such a, I mean, we'll talk about it when we talk about the individual songs, but what a contrast from the music that you're hearing, especially in a lot of the intros to the songs, to if you start listening and really paying attention to the lyrics that he's putting out, like, mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, as I say, that's, you know, that's what he's always been known for. And he's kind of... It, it's a shame, really. He's a bit of a tragic figure because, by all accounts, he's a bit of a dick to work with, which is why he keeps, he can't seem to, you know, he's never been able to sort of stay right, in the band. Right, because I saw him and Andy Sneap had a falling out, right? Yeah, which, yeah, yeah, because Andy Sneap was another member of Sabbath. Yeah, uh, I think they, I think they might have made up again since, but they haven't worked together again since. But um, I hadn't read anywhere before that Andy Sneap was difficult to work with. Maybe I just missed oh, that. So, like when I saw that, I was like, huh? They, no, they had a falling out, like. I don't think there's any doubt. I think anybody in the business, you know, it's kind of an open secret, like I say, that Walkier is not the easiest guy to work with. So I don't think there'd sure. be any doubt that if he and Sneep fell out, it's probably Walkier's fault, you know. Um, uh-huh. uh, the thing is, it's it's really unfortunate. Like the way his career's gone, he made lots of naive, not even bad business decisions, but naive business decisions because they all started so early. Uh, and Noise Records as we know, you know, have a notorious, they now have a notorious reputation for basically being shits uh, and having a terrible, terrible contracts for their artists. And Sabat was signed to Noise and then Skyglad was signed to Noise. And, you know, there were even songs on this album. In fact, there are songs on just about every Skyglad album about how shit the record company are. Yep, (laughs) there absolutely is. And how he wishes that they weren't under contract to them. Um, Yeah, it's... As a result, it's one of the things, it's not the only thing, but it's one of the things that contributed to, I've always felt that he never had the success that his talent deserved because he is, I mean, you know, you can argue about whether or not he's a good vocalist, but he is undeniably an amazing lyricist. He, you know, his lyrics are just some of the best you will ever come across. Uh, And yet he never really got recognized for it outside of a kind of hardcore group of metalheads. Um, and so it's kind of understandable that that's left him somewhat bitter, uh, because you know, he's like, now he's a middle-aged man like the rest of us and never really had that success that somebody with his talent, you know, would hope at least that they would achieve. And obviously nobody's guaranteed anything, but it is a real shame that. Especially when they put out something as quality as this well, you know what i mean like to so have hard. that in your yeah. in your catalog to be able to say we made this yeah. and it's amazing and we and by, never got and and they worked hard they toured a lot they played a lot they were yeah. they were very popular at festivals they were always a popular festival band they're one of those you know because some metal bands don't really work at festivals skyclad always did because because of the jig you know because they had enough songs that were sort of like jig-like and danceable that you can sure. really get the crowd going um, but yeah, they were, they were living in cars. There was one tale of them, like when they made one album, it might've been Jonah's art where they were s- literally sleeping like in the mixing room, sleeping under the desk at night because they couldn't afford to stay in hotels. Um, yep. 
you know, it's like, hang on, how can you be playing festivals uh, every summer throughout Europe and not have enough money to sleep in a hotel? That's just, it's, it seems crazy. Um, and I met the band a few times because I went to see them live quite a few times. They were cracking live. I never saw them at a festival, but, you know, at actual headlining gigs. And so, I, you know, I met Valkyrie and, and bought him a drink a couple of times. Uh, and he was always, he was nice. He was always sort of unfailingly polite, but you could tell that he was like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, right. I, I should be playing to much bigger crowds than this. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's just a real shame. But as you say, in terms of the work, the legacy of work, they left behind, you know, and he left behind some absolutely fantastic stuff, including this album, which is, yeah, sort of loose concept album about uh, Britain in post-Thatcher. You've got to remember, early 90s, the Tories had now been in power for, I think, 15, 16 years when this was yeah. recorded, and Britain had been through some serious deprivation, you know, like closing down the uh, coal mines and, uh, you know, clashes with the police over that sort of thing. Um, Clause 28 had been introduced. Uh, we'd had the, this year, the year this came out was the criminal justice bill, which, uh, you probably won't have heard of, but it was a notorious thing in Britain in the nineties. That was the, the law that basically outlawed raves because raves scared the piss out of the establishment. Yep. Um, and a whole bunch of other things as well, like gave the police greater rights for stop and search, uh, changed the right to silence. If you were arrested, like you still have the right to silence, but now the police are allowed to draw inferences from your silence, things like yeah. that. It was a really anti, frankly, frankly, anti-poor people and anti-working class. Uh, I mean, it, it's it impossible terrible. not to draw parallels to today, right? I mean, uh, absolutely, it, yeah. Especially in America, of, of you know, sort of what's going on. So, yeah, it, it the thing that blew me away about this album when I got into my second and third listen of it was how super dark it is. Like it is super dark yeah. <laughs> from it a is. lyrical standpoint. And, and, and it takes a listen through to adjust how I'm hearing the music to actually match the lyrics. But I found that mix as time went on, but like I was continually, I would go back to the lyrics and be like, did he just say, yep, no, he just said that. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the music, I mean, there are tracks on this where the music is a bit dark, but overall, it's not. Overall, you know, it's Agreed. fairly, I wouldn't say happy rock music, but it's fairly straight. But that's where that folksy sort of piece comes in, right? It, it has this sort of uh, lift to it. And that, that to me is where initially the metal and the folk kind of contrasted one Cl another. Clash rather than mix. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah, totally. And then, but the more you listen to it, the more you actually... I think find that mix. Yeah. I, I, this is one, I mean, I'm obviously I'm really interested to hear, you know, your opinions up, but I'm also genuinely interested to hear what listeners who had never come across Skyclad before think of this album, you know, what their thoughts are, because as I say, they're such a unique band with such a unique sound. And thanks to Walkier's lyrics, you know, this really unique mix of, yeah, folk music, metal, and then his vocals and lyrics on the top. Um, that, uh, yeah, it's kind of, but for me, of course, because I discovered them as they were rising, Sure, you know, at the time, it's really difficult for me to look at it objectively uh, because, you know, I loved them from the first moment I heard them. I was like, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm in. Um, so 
you know, 20 odd years later now, God, nearly 25 years on, I'm really interested to hear what people uh, think about it. The one thing I will say, let's uh, just quickly talk about Welkier's vocal style as well, because not many people were doing vocals like this at the time. This was, again, a sort of a vocal style that was on the rise in the 90s. Now, you kind of don't blink at somebody who sings like this, but at the time it was quite... Uh, you know, I remember people complaining about like, the fact that he didn't sing and he was just shouting, uh, which of yeah. course to me was the appeal. But <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that's appeal that, that that that's an appeal for me. But I will say that I think overall, including his uh, his vocal style, this is an album to me that's even at first listen like an easy listen. Like I didn't like with uh, Entombed or or some of the other stuff that we've listened to. Like it really takes me a while to find my way into that album. Like right, so I was in the first time yeah. through. It just was that clash of folk and metal that wasn't clicking with me. Right. But I didn't find any of it like not pleasurable to listen to. Okay, like right, right off the bat, it just it it all felt like a um. The music itself, even without the lyrics, to me is like it. It wasn't hard to listen to at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, musically, I I agree. Yeah, it's just I know some people aren't taken with his vocals. I remember he did guest vocals on a uh, an album by For God's Sake, who uh, a new another Newcastle band. Um, and I remember reading. I I was never a fan of For God's Sake, but I remember reading a review of that album. Uh, in which the reviewer described it was in Kerrang again. The dis- the reviewer described him his guest spot as as Martin Welkier barking away in the background, <laughs> and I just thought well, that's a, such a perfect description of his vocal style. <laughs> it really is, but when you actually go and read the lyrics, I don't know that it could be delivered any other way. Right, like when I when I read his lyrics, I would not want that sung. In a clean, like there is a, there's emotion and anger and bitterness and frustration in almost every word of this album. And that delivery of his feels perfect for what he's saying. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So as I say, this album, yeah, 1994, uh, there are 10 songs on it, 53 minutes. So, you know, a little longer than some albums we've done, but it's still under an hour. Um, uh, I'll, actually, I'll mention that there is most people the version. If you've only bought it more recently, I think there's an eleventh track, which was a bo- originally a bonus track uh, called "Brothers Beneath the Skin." I believe that that wasn't on the original pressing of the album, and so we're not, you know, we won't be covering that because the version I have is just the the ten tracks. Um, yeah, as I said, like post Thatcherite Britain, where you know the country was in a really shit state, frankly. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of understand. And that's the other thing, like these days, obviously nationalism and sort of like, you know, um, national heritage has been really perverted and just corrupted to become kind of white power stuff. Uh, and I, which I fucking hate, I really hate that it's been corrupted in that that way. But at the time that wasn't the case. Um, you know, in fact, there are actually songs, there's literally a song on this album which is explicitly anti-white power, anti-fascist. Um, it absolutely is. And yet, yeah, but back in the 90s, if, you know, you're sort of talking about your Celtic heritage or something, it wasn't a dog whistle for being a white nationalist. Um, and the the melding of that kind of, you know, hearkening to the past and your Celtic heritage and stuff with the Grebo movement 
and the uh, you know the plight of the homeless in London, which was really bad in the nineties, uh, possibly even worse than it is now, or certainly almost as bad, um, is kind of a, at first it's an odd one, but the the or rather it's not one that I would have made myself. But the moment I saw the cover to this album, because the cover. Uh, again, you know, if you didn't grow up in the nineties, you might not sort of make the connection, but the cover, uh, the character depicted on the cover is clearly, you know, a sort of homeless traveling type from, uh, England. And, uh, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I don't know why, but it just sort of seemed to really match well. Uh, and then of course, yes, the lyrics are all about deprivation, unemployment, homelessness, uh, you know, inner city. Losing your humanity. Right, losing your humanity, inner city, deprivation and corruption, and all of these things, drugs and just, you know, as you say, really, really dark album. But it does kind of fit, uh, and it makes for a really meaty uh, both sound and concept for an album. Um, One uh, personnel change we had on this album was I mentioned that that lineup was fairly stable, but then the fiddle player Fritha Jenkins got pregnant um, and went off to have a baby and decided that she was going to sort of like take some time off from the band. As it happened, she never returned, but originally it was just going to be temporary. And she was replaced by a woman called Kath Howell, who I believe was like not long out of university, had been a music student. Um, and she literally only did this one album with Skyclad. And didn't do a lot else with anybody else no, dude, either. I looked her. I actually looked her up to see like what else she might have uh, done and everything. There, it, I couldn't find anything. Yeah, yeah. It's re- and I, I have no idea why. I don't know whether it's you know for personal reasons or professional reasons or whatever. But she basically did this one album, did a couple of guest spots on other albums, and then that was the end of her music career. Uh, which is really weird because, like I say, when I saw them live quite a few times, and it was basically mostly off the back of this album and the next one. And whenever I saw uh the montour on this album she always looked like she was having an absolute ball um you know yep. she was one of the most animated people on the stage so yeah, i don't know what happened there but anyway she does an excellent job um uh but it does feel the fiddle and violin parts do feel a little and the keyboard actually feel a little bit different to the previous albums as a result i think her i was going to ask you about that like her stylistically compared to yeah, the previous player i think her influence on this album is possibly underrated because again you know this album does not sound like the one before it doesn't sound like the one after it either i mean and the band are in evolution obviously steve ramsey's playing and writing was evolving all the time um but yeah i think her influence on it was maybe stronger than most people realize as well so shall we get into the tracks let's do it all right so track one opening the album is civil war dance
Yeah, which I think uh, I love the driving rhythm of this song. It's almost like uh, this r- rolling momentum that it has mm-hmm. right out of the beginning that is uh, driven by the violin and they're just sort of playing chords behind it, you know, like dun, dun, dun. And the, and the violin is really providing so much energy to that. Like I, I really like the opening of this and it reminds me a little bit um, with the whispering that you get of spreading the disease by Queensryche in my head. <laughs> I like in my head, I definitely had, cause as soon as I read, Oh, it's kind of a concept album and you can, I would say it's a, it's a very thematic album, even if the songs are not telling a specific Right, the songs story. don't tell a single story, but you're right, right. It's more thematic than concept, yeah. Right, Which, but I think they established that, and that does weave through the entire album. Um, but I definitely got a little bit of that, you know, uh, spreading the disease uh, feel from that. And this was the song, the opening song, where I was like, wow, this kind of feels pretty upbeat for what I'm hearing with the lyrics here. <laughs> and so uh, and so that was the you know my first sign to delve a little bit deeper into what he's saying. I mean, in each of these songs I just pulled out a couple of lines but for crying out loud like you go read all the lyrics if you oh, yeah. haven't yeah, yeah. if you haven't really listened to this and and gotten into them like take your partners for our civil war dance open season on the underworked and overpaid Erase the Constitution, a bloody revolution, is the simplest solution to the problems that they have made. That pretty much says it. I mean, that's pretty know. much their manifesto, isn't it? That's- well, it is. It absolutely is. It's his war cry, you know? It's his call to action in this first song, and repeated in different ways throughout the entire album. Of yep. like it, uh, Which, again, to me, drew so many parallels to to the world that we're living in now in, in that you, as you listen to this, even though it's very, the music feels light at first. And the more that I listen to this album, it is, uh, that sort of lightness became a anxious feeling. Right. This album feels anxious in that it feels like it's the precursor to something that's about to explode. And I feel like that energy kind of moves throughout the album of like, People getting fed up, people being at their breaking point, people being past the point of no return, and all of that about to bubble over. And I think the more I listen to it, all of that stuff really, I felt it in each song. And so what what was, I thought, a very light violin line at the beginning of this song became, for me, something that is almost like maddening, like on the edge of of sort of uh, frantic. Right, right. I I think if there's one... The most depressing thing about this album is how relevant all of the lyrics are oh 25 years on. Like, unbelievable. You, you could write these lyrics now and people would go, wow, what a great statement about the current state of our world. And that is really fucking depressing, man. It is super depressing. I mean, dude. even in this song, there's one uh, towards the end. They fight for something they believe in, not another nation's oil. I'm like, how f- how far we've come, how little we've journeyed. I know. It's unbelievable. Just yeah, ridiculous. Um, I find that really interesting, though, that you uh, think that you find the music in this track really sort of like light and uplifting. Because I and I think this shows how much influence lyrics can have over perception. Because to me, and one of the things I love about this song is how angry 
everything is, including the music. I mean, obviously the lyrics and Valkyrie's delivery of them are incredibly angry. But the, to me, the music sounds angry, angry as well. It founds, uh, sounds like it's kind of uh, like seething with anger, almost. There's something well, about the guitars and the drums, especially that kind of the rolling drums underneath that to me sounds really furious. Well, and I don't disagree with that, but I, I think that that is what changed for me from first listen to multiple listens. Right. You know what I mean? There, it was, it was that. Well, but again, is that the, the violin the lines? Well, I think part of it is, but also getting through the, because I think the violin line is so prominent that it's easy for that to be what catches your attention. But that underlying seething guitar line, which is just, you know, very angrily hitting dun, 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 like is yeah. very doomy. I almost feel like, and as you give it multiple listens, that starts to come through, at least it did to me, more than what initially grabbed me, which was the violin. And that's where I got the sort of light, you know, feel from. And then I had to look at the lyrics and be like, huh, okay, well, I need to go back and listen to this again. Um, <laughs> yeah, the violin, yeah. the violins and guitars, like playing solos off one another and doing counterpoint melodies and stuff, obviously is a theme throughout the album and, you know, is a theme throughout this era of Skycloud full stop, you know, so if you go and listen to any of their other albums around this area, you'll find that on almost every track, uh, you know, which is one of the things I really like about them. They're not one of these bands who just kind of play metal and then occasionally wheel out the violin for 30 seconds and then wheel the violinist back behind the curtain again. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's absolutely built into the tracks and into the sound of the band. Yes. It's, it's definitely not a, it's not an accent. It is part of the DNA of every song that they're that they're creating here. And the the other thing that stands out to me immediately about the vocal style is that it's very percussive. Yes, you know he's you know, and it is uh, it is lending to almost the drum line and yeah. and just the his cadence overall. Like there's times where he's he's singing through the verse into the chorus, but is it really the chorus? I don't even know if it's the chorus because it's kind of just going forward like. He he doesn't constrain himself to the same pattern on every song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you know, his patterns, his vocal patterns, and he did this in Sabbath as well. This is one of Valkyrie's strengths as a vocalist, I think, is that, and, and as a lyricist, is that he's able to write these lyrics so that he can deliver them matching the rhythm yeah. of the song, uh, you know, and still be perfectly comprehensible and awesome lyrics with great wordplay and everything, but also broken up into the correct rhythms and syllables that match the rhythm of the song, whether that's the guitar or the drums or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, as I say, I think that's one of his great strengths. And again, kind of underrated. Um, totally underrated. It's, you know, it's something that not that many other people do. I'll tell you who does do it or who did do it. Uh, and this is not an obvious comparison, but I'll tell you what, Michael Kiska on his Halloween uh, you know yep. he, that era of Halloween. He did the same thing. Like he would, his he would sing in rhythm with the song. Um, and yeah, not a lot of vocalists actually do that. And so when somebody does, it can have a really good cumulative effect of making everything feel much more rhythmic. And I think he probably got more credit for it because of his clean singing than yeah. you know uh, Welkier gets here because of his style, which kind of gets dismissed a little bit. Right. And he's, I mean, he, and he's very much uh, an acquired taste. Whereas, you know, Kiska, again, you know, you may 
Totally. You may prefer another singer over him, but nobody's going to listen to Kiska singing and go, well, he can't sing. You know, nobody's right. going to dismiss that. Everybody listens to it and goes, wow, what an amazing voice. Right. So, yeah, that is, again, you know, another reason, like you say, why the band uh, that contributed to the band being uh, dismissed, unfortunately. Um, I love the uh, bass run that ends this Me song too. as well. And I thought you might, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I shout out to the bass throughout this entire album, which is, uh, you can hear it. <laughs> it's it's up in the mix. And it is, uh, there's some beautiful bass lines on this album. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, that's, Graham English was one of the sort of, not quite a founder member, but like the third member and is still in the band. Him, him and Steve Ramsey are the only uh a sort of original members left in the band now funnily enough the uh producer of this album kevin ridley is now a member of the band he joined as a uh guitarist in i think the late 90s and then in the early 2000s when walkie quit the band he took over as lead singer and i think that's yeah. been the situation ever since um uh unfortunately he's not the lyricist walkie is uh, and he is much more of a clean singer, so they do sound like a very different band. They sound like the Levelers, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not really what I want in in Skyclad. You know, we already have the Levelers. Um, yeah. Do you even know who the Levelers are? No, no. <laughs> Just occurred to me they're a very British phenomenon. <laughs> another but sort I'm of glad like that you feel like you already have them and you didn't need more. Of yeah, that. yeah. The, the, uh, the Levelers are another sort of folk rock band actually like less metal more just sort of indie rock but yeah sort of folk indie guitar rock uh band um anyway let's not get into that i'm sure our british listeners now are, are chuckling at a mention of the levelers uh because nobody's mentioned them in years so let's move on to track two cardboard city This, I mean, this is, those are the chimes of Big Ben that start this track, if you were wondering. I think that's fairly obvious in context. Well, and it brings me back to my Catholic school days, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know about if this travels across the Atlantic, but Cardboard City is slang for sort of a homeless ghetto. Yeah, well, I, I immediately thought Tent City. Right. Because we have a lot of those. Like, right. I was just, a uh, place that I just traveled this week had a pretty... A big tent city in the in the city that I was walking around in. So yeah, but right. yeah, I, it, you can I think it, it translates context, pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. This has a storming beat. This one. This is one of. I mean, this is one of the. I don't know if it was a single necessarily, but it was certainly a standout track from the album. Uh, and this song has a so. lot going on. Yeah, but it's got a really driving beat. The great lyrics, homage to Jerusalem, which was of course written by an Englishman, and then to the Lord's Prayer. 
um, a keyboard solo <laughs> in the middle eight. Well, and I mean, t- this this sounds very sort of eighties synth to me like that that particular piece of the song but i also got like kind of an iron maiden vibe out of this one. Oh, really and i love his this is one where i i feel like his cadence and the way that he delivers his vocals is it's like one two three four five one two three four five like it the way that he sings here it, it really much like the first song it drives that rhythm yeah. And what it's what's cool about that is that it it almost gets into this like sonic wall effect where it's all working together and it's just kind of all churning in. It's got a groove that his vocals really lock you into, which I really like. Yeah, well, and the guitars contribute to that quite a bit as well on this track, I think. I mean, there are other tracks where it's more of a wall of guitars, but the way that the guitars are played in this is there are no there's no emptiness. Uh, you know, the, right. the guitars never stop basically no and it's got this bouncing rhythm to it yes yeah well that's what i said that kind of driving beat that really you know pulls you through the song um this was a a live favorite and i can tell you that um partly just because it is a great song with great lyrics but also because yeah that beat really gets a crowd moving um you know and gets you sort of like tapping your feet and banging your head yeah and the lyrics i mean no one dies in cardboard city faces only fade away eat your pride and take their pity fight to live another day yeah i mean just like eking out an existence until you can find a foothold and start to climb back out of this hole like that right the the lyrics are super inspired they are except of course in this song you know nobody ever does climb out again well right (laughs) but that that mentality of like i'm right now you just have to survive and get through this and then there'll be a point where you can turn the corner yeah i mean you know probably the most famous lyric in this track the one that everybody sings along with whenever i saw it live was my spray paint epitaph upon the wall says here lies the bones of some poor homeless vagrant he died as he lived in the shit on the pavement i mean yep that's that's dark man (laughs) i mean you could literally see that spray painted on a wall oh yeah yeah (laughs) you know like that absolutely especially in london at that time as i say yeah it's uh but it is and again that's the thing it's a great track it's a a sing-along dance-along track with these terrible that's what i'm saying angry lyrics (laughs) i mean listen to this just how about this line chip wrapper flowers are blown onto this cardboard grave Uh, yep yep that is one of the darkest lines I've ever read. I mean, just like brutal, but that's, that's that contrast of like the music in some ways feels like if you didn't hear the lyrics and someone just played you the song, it's, it almost feels uplifting, you know, at times during the album. And then you put the lyrics in there and it just, yeah, um, which I think also (laughs) plays into that theme of like, you just said here, like of that mentality of like, you know, um, hope when there is none, but lyrically, they just remind you, like, by the end, like, yeah, no, there is actually none. <laughs> like yeah, the, yeah. the song is like, hey, maybe someday they'll turn around. And then it, by the end of the song, it's like, no, actually, it's not going to. Yeah, we're all screwed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're screwed if you're poor, which is, you know, the I mean, that's the real sort of theme running through the whole album, For sure. isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, and also make everybody poor. Oh, well, you know, yeah. And yeah. then keep, yeah. keep them down. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, all right, let's move on to track three, and that's Sins of Emission. (laughs) 
this is another song I feel like the violin super drives the tempo of this song. And to me, my take on it was about sort of just becoming beholden to your basic instincts. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it's about. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this is probably the most outright folk of all the tracks on the album because the fiddle leads the song throughout the entire track. Like there's no point of this track where the fiddle isn't playing and leading the song through. Um, right. Uh, and yes, it is all about sort of, you know, how we're, how civilization forces us to cage our baser instincts. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I mean, again, it's kind of, as I was rereading the lyrics to this one, uh, I was thinking bit, like, uh, yeah, in 2018, <laughs> not you know, gonna fly today. Yeah. Not really yeah. the sort of most politically correct thing uh, that you're going to sing about, but obviously in the nineties, you know, that wasn't a concern. And again, regardless of that, the actual lyrics, you know, the sort of the, the quality of the lyrics is once again, just superb. Um, you know, some wonderful puns and, uh, great wordplay and stuff. And just really well constructed as well. The other thing that it made me think about was that when you have everything taken away from you, what do you have left, right? And and all of these sort of facades and and these sort of societal constraints that um, that we all live by on a daily basis, when they start to degrade because your daily existence is literally just about survival, then you start to give in to those baser instincts. Like, so if from a thematic standpoint, I feel like it actually does flow pretty well from cardboard city into this song in terms of like having your humanity stripped from you and, and sort of what, a what, a what is left of that. So I think that, you know, rather than sort of be a, uh, not necessarily like a celebration of, of giving into your baser instincts, I, I feel like thematically it fits with the idea of, you know, when you have everything taken away from you, your all you have left is your sort of basic instincts. I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that that's possibly a slightly generous, uh, you know, <laughs> reading of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely elements of that there. Uh, well, know, it's it, it's so hypersexualized that it feels like that's the only, <laughs> you know, right, like, right. I, clearly I think, with the title. I, I think this is one of those tracks where actually there's not much subtext. It is mostly just text, <laughs> which is unusual for Valkyrie, admittedly. But it's yeah. Unless, as you say, that is the subtext in this one. But I must admit, I never really got that from this because it's quite plain, as you spe- especially as you say with the title, it's quite plain what it's about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, hold tightly the reins of your bestial instinct to breed. He's an unwelcome guest in the house trained existence you lead. It's, right. You know, <laughs> there's not much ambiguity there, is there? <laughs> no. But again, no, there isn't. A, a great track. Uh, and you say, again, unusual because it's led by the fiddle. You know, it's not. Like you said, it's not an accent. It's an integral part of the sound by the, by the time they made this album, um, which really marked them out as, again, you know, sort of unique. Um, uh, and then, right, and then track four, Land of the Rising Slum. Come 
And this... Dude. This is the the real... Probably my favourite song on the album. It's the centre point of the album. It's the track yep. that everybody remembers from this album. Uh, and this this has a, an actual wall of guitar. This really is yeah. a wall of sound to it. But it's got a really good beat as well. The piano to start has a kind of a... The percussion. A house music almost feel about it. It's Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's really it odd. Sounds like the, it sounds like an opening to to uh, to an anime series. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it does. It definitely has that almost like jazzy sort of uh, piano line there. But then it's got this amazing percussion as well. And But once it kicks into gear, that sort of sonic vibe is is really going. Yeah, it is, like I said, just a wall of guitars. Uh, but it's got great dynamics, this track, as well. It rises and falls at just the right times. You know, just when you've had enough of the wall of sound, it'll fade away and give you a bit of, like, you know, a light breakdown and stuff. And then just when that's gone on, just as long as you need it to, bang, you know, there's an organ solo or something, or in comes yeah, the Yeah, and then the, the baseline. Again. Yeah, right. totally. It's, uh, yeah, dynamically, it's really excellently constructed. Um Again, great lyrics. It's hard to even crawl with your back up against the wall. I mean, that's that's pretty fucking good. <laughs> well, and to reach back to the last song, like, are some people born bad or is it how we all become? You yes. know, those questions of, like, human termites driven mad in the concrete mound of the rising slum. Yeah. Like, just that whole theme of, like, are, are you turning people into monsters? Yep. You know, is this does this existence drive us all eventually to to evil right exactly yeah yeah it's uh well and to crime which obviously you know people associate with absolutely stuff and yeah yep. it's racism and uh us versus them he even mentions helter skelter in this social helter skelter he does ride the downward spiral has begun um see there again downward spiral a helter skelter but downward spiral also fall of society it's so good he's so good yep. <laughs> it is it is it really is like even if you didn't dig this album like you just go look up the lyrics and read through from start to finish the lyrics and you'll be blown away yeah yeah also here's a good time to mention the, the guitar solos because you know famously as we know i'm you know i'm not a huge fan of like the sort of million miles an hour frat wanking solos but i love most of the solos on this album because they are memorable you know, I can actually sing along with most of the guitar solos on this album, which is not true for many, many other albums. They're really memorable. They're tuneful. They're emotional. They are a bit bluesy, but not too bluesy. Uh, you know, I, I think Steve Ramsey is a really, really underrated uh, soloist because he's not technically, you know, an Ingvai Malmsteen or something, but his uh, his ability to write a solo is, I think, absolutely superb. Yeah, agreed. I, I think that emotional is the term that jumps into my mind i think they they fit very well within each song yeah uh and then the end of this song uh i think is a stroke of genius with like every member of the band repeating the yes. line as it cross fades into the next track absolutely awesome such a simple thing but works so well and they're all doing it dead flat as well there's no emotion uh in their voice you know no feeling in it just and were they directed to do it that way, or was it because they're not vocalists? I don't know, <laughs> but it works. <laughs> it definitely works. Um, so yeah, as I say, that's a real high point of the album. I think most people, as I say, that's the track that most people associate with this album. It's the one that really stands out. Uh, but not, you know, not the only high point on the album. So let's go into track five, The One Piece Puzzle.
Are your thoughts like the world spinning round? Existence is pure pantomime Why is life such a puzzle sometimes? Yeah, this one, a kind of a somber opening. Uh, to me, it feels musically to be much more in line with the darker themes mm-hmm. than yeah. some of the other songs. Like, it doesn't, I don't mistake this song, even at first listen, for sort of a light and airy, <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's mournful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sort of melancholy. Even the guitars sound a bit medieval you've got a marching drum roll and stuff and it is very slow and sad um and when they do come in it's heavy yes like when the crunch comes in it is crunching like it is it is very heavy well you, earlier you mentioned like the in the first track the how the guitars that go behind the violin are kind of doomy um yeah this is very doomy and this is yeah there are a few doomy tracks on this album not many but you know a couple and this is definitely one of them even though it is you know technically it's a ballad um but it is yeah again mournful and a bit doomy uh really kind of you know feeling sorry for yourself uh, lyrics as well if men, oh, if cry, men have a sell by date i've just reached mine now we've come to the end of the line i mean it's like wow you had your heart broken or what <laughs> right, though I've carried my cross, worn my heart on my sleeve, still deep inside something has died. Yeah. it's. Uh, but I love the, I mean, again, you know, the, the lyrics almost go without saying. I love the grungy feel of the guitars on this one as well, which I think fits with that doomy feel, how everything feels overdriven. Everything's got just a hint of feedback. It's kind of, because again, ballads, you know, you might expect them to be kind of clean and right. precise. And this is not that at all. This is kind of, you know, a bit loose and a bit dirty. And like I said, there's a bit of feedback in there. And I just think that really contributes to the the overall feeling. Yeah, because well, a lot of times ballads are made with the radio in mind, right? And this doesn't feel like that was uh, <laughs> that was the case. You know, so like, it, which which I think makes it even better because it's, it's the song for the song's sake, as opposed to trying to fit into some formula. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I, this is also a good point, good time to mention how almost every track on this album fades, which bugs the hell out of me um because which is so funny because doesn't that doesn't even doesn't even register with you yeah doesn't yeah. even register with me no yeah um but you've got yeah like the marching drums come back in again at the end and it's it's really nice but then they fade and they don't even fade into the next track like at least the previous track land of the rising slum fades into this one which is sure. which is kind of nice but this one just fades out literally just fades out but then of course uh when it was on vinyl this would have been the last track on side one. Right. So, you know, it has to either end or fade out one of the two. Uh, so flip it over uh, back in the vinyl days to first track on side two or track six overall, which is a belly full of emptiness. Simple, 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 my, 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 my
Fantastic song. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that half-time drum intro. That, again, you know, the intro to this is quite doomy because that half-time drum thing is very, really slow. Like, I mean, that's... I that, felt like I say half-time, it might be quarter-time even. Oh, really? I got, I got a bit of a Saxon vibe off of this. Again, I think a lot of the... Even though this was an album that came out in the 90s, I feel like there's a lot of just... There's a lot of 80s influence on it from some of the synth to just some of the riffs like i i definitely this one gave me a saxon vibe for sure well and you mentioned the synths and i was going to say the one of the things that makes we talked about the keyboards and the synthesizers and there's a really this whole track has a keyboard bed underneath it uh yeah you know and it's not super loud but it's definitely there you can hear it uh it's kind of an 80s action movie <laughs> kind of vibe that it gives off. It kind of is, but nothing that they'd done before this had that. I can't think of any previous track that had that sort of okay, the entire track has got this do 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 keyboard thing going underneath it. Yeah, um, it's like action chase scene right. from an 80s action movie. <laughs> yeah, generic sound. Like where they're ju- they're they're throwing garbage cans behind them to trip the other person up <laughs> and you know, b- bursting through, you know, sort of street carts and stuff like that. I don't know how many of those tracks would have had a bass solo though. No, no, and 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 the the guitar solo is very soul. This is I actually made a note like soulful it's solo. Sad. It's a sad solo, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I made a note of that as well. It's uh, yeah, really kind of just just sad overall. Um, I love the chorus. I mean, all of the choruses are good, but I love this one especially because I love the way that the guitar note at the end of each line of the chorus hangs. Some again yeah. talking about dynamics. Something about the way that's played against Valkyrie's voice uh, just really, really works. Just kind of, I don't know, drives you to the next line really good. Um, I always felt, actually, that this was the most personal lyric on the album. Uh, I mean, it fits with the you know the theme concept, of course, as we said, but, but so much of this song, the lyrics in this song, seems specific to Valkyrie and his situation. Yeah. Um, that yeah 26 years old please tell me what i what have i got a monopoly on misery i guess that's my lot yeah yeah 10 years of eating bullshit leaves its taste in your mouth <laughs> yeah and, and all through i mean you could literally read the entire song oh. and it's i think it's clearly him lamenting sort of missed opportunities and stuff um and, you know, kind well, of... Well, just putting all your money back into the music and, st- you know, like, tell me how can you resent me for the money I've spent right. on the only habit I indulge that's paying the rent. Yep. Yeah. No one said this life was easy. Christ, I've known that all along, but it needn't be this difficult. That's why I wrote this song. I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's so sad. And, of course, you know, prophetic, because, uh, you know, it is it is true. He's done almost nothing since leaving Skycloud, musically, I mean. Uh, I know he had some personal tragedy, you know, parents dying, that sort of thing. Uh, and he started a new project called The Clandestined. Um, but that never really got anywhere. They released like one demo EP or something, uh, and that's about it. And yeah, as I say, just a real shame that somebody with so much talent just can't seem to find a profitable outlet for it. Um, yep. Uh, oh, and that was the other one. Talking about puns, there are claws in the contract we signed clause C L A W S. Oh, I mean, so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. What a fucking great pun. It really it is. is. Um, 
Ah, oh, yeah, so good, so good, so sad, but so good. I mean, as a writer, right? You look at some of these lines, and you're just like, "Damn!" Oh, yeah, just like nothing but admiration for for his lyrical abilities. Yeah, yeah. From the moment I came across Valkyrie's lyrics, even in like in the early Sabbath days, like I've always felt that I've always been like, I wish that I could write a lyric even half as good and clever as this, you know. Um, well, because it's such a contrast to uh, many bands who the lyrics are sort of the thing they pay attention to the least, right? I mean, yeah. as opposed to really putting your heart and soul into to the lyrics and and having a song offer something thematically that you can continue to go back to and think about and, and mull over and that kind of stuff, as opposed to so many songs that have throwaway lyrics you know yeah well and real real sort of nuanced food for thought that's because metal you know there are quite a lot of metal bands have protest songs uh right but they're either protests about you know mom and dad won't let me party um or they're if they are political protest songs they're kind of broad you know they're just kind of general war is hell and politicians are bastards uh which you know are fine sentiments that i fully agree with but right they're all a version of like don't tell me what to do right but they are exactly yeah they're all really kind of broad whereas these are really specific you know each of these songs is about a very very specific social ill or you know societal wrong and and yet they're all equally good equally insightful um equally powerful i mean it's basically spoken word poetry that he's barking at you know yeah uh, you could put this in a book of poetry with a, you know a series of photographs or something like that like <laughs> it, and it, and and it could probably stand on its own yeah i yeah i think you're right yeah um so all right let's just move on to track 7 that is uh, a dog in the manger Yeah, I mean, this to me, this is like the uh, equivalent of in America the song of uh, going to L.A. to find your future, right? You know, like getting getting on the bus from from uh, you know some small town and buying a one way bus ticket to L.A. to become a star, and then having that crash and burn. Right. Which there has been a million songs. I mean, the the one that jumped to mind that people will probably throw their 
phone out the car when they hear this, but like Poison's Fallen Angel, like that, that immediately is what I, because that's about that, or Bon Jovi has a song about that. Like there's so many songs about, especially during the Sunset Strip era yeah. of uh, glam and hair metal of that whole, I'm going, I'm going to uh, LA to become a star and live out my dream. Yeah. And that's exactly what this is. Yeah. You know, it's about an, an abused kid who leaves home for the bright lights of London uh, and then winds up homeless on the street with nothing. Um, yep. And that's even in the extended skit that this starts with, uh, which is, I think it's meant to simulate uh, entering the tube, the underground in London, because uh, you yep. pass by a busker, you can hear, you know, people chattering and stuff in the background. Um you can hear a train approaching. It's it's clearly meant to. I'm not sure what the exact scenario is supposed to be necessarily, but it's clearly meant to evoke that feeling of basically being alone in London. Because that's the irony, isn't it, of big cities like London, New York, and LA is you can be surrounded by people and well, yet yes. never feel more alone. Absolutely. Um, and this, yeah, as I say it's a really tragic uh, song. This one. Well, it's so the injustice of it all, right? Yeah. I mean, this kid who's escaping his his miserable home life to go and get a fresh start and, and only finds more misery. Yeah. And musically, it's one of the most complex tracks on the album, I think. Uh, and also one of the most metal, even though the violin's quite prominent, but it feels to me like this is the most straight-ahead metal track on the album. Yeah, this song actually reminded me of Now It's Dark from Anthrax. Oh, um, right, yeah. It's it's it almost has like a uh, a breathing effect to it, you know. Yeah, it's uh, but it, it is heavy, and as I say, it's kind of like musically ambitious. Uh, but yeah, agreed. Just, and the solo rips. It does, it does, but it is depressing as hell. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like, can you feel the mood going down as we keep as we keep exploring that's kind this of the story it, of this album, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, man. It really is. Like, it's it's um as a whole though, it's very profound. It really well, and it's about to get you know it ain't oh, yeah. it ain't about to get any lighter because track eight is Gamadian Seed. I mean, you talk about a, a song that is relevant. Oh yeah, and sadly timeless. Uh, this is that song. Yeah, yeah. So the word for listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, the word comes from the Gamadian cross, which is basically a new, another word for the swastika, because yep. it is the Greek letter gamma, 
which is like an upside down L uh, arranged in a cross, basically. Um, and so the Gamadian seed is obviously a reference to fascism and Nazism. Uh, I love the intro to this track with the flanged guitars. Yeah. Uh, it's so dramatic. And then like, you know, you come in with the drums and an intro guitar solo before you even get any lyrics. There's your guitar solo. Um, but then, yeah, you get the lyrics. And as you say, it is, how sad is it that these lyrics are so still so relevant 25 years Brutal. later, man. Yep. Um, but again, great track. The chorus, fantastic chorus, so dramatic. Uh, and then uh, after the end of the chorus, there's that extra keyboard bit that sort of, and that like the choir, and that really does lift it up. That actually feels like it's, oh, maybe there's a bit of hope, <laughs> you know, musically. Um, right. Uh, but no, there isn't. Uh, nice bass solo as well going into the middle eight. There's a few bass solos on this album, isn't there? Yeah, uh, the bass, I think, is easy to overlook on this album because you have such because everything else is dynamic almost all the time mm-hmm. you know but what but if you if you listen through like the the bass lines are wonderful yeah yeah that is say Graham English is a really really accomplished bassist uh and I'm I'm glad that you get to hear that a few times on this album uh but yeah the gamadian seed draw the curtains live in fear watch your neighbors disappear um yeah it's, it's so like i say just well, horribly yeah, just relevant. like uh, not paying close enough attention to watch this element starting to really thrive. And then it's too late when you notice how bad it's actually become. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Which I mean, go on Twitter after you're done listening to the show (laughs) and it it really is like, it's, it's, uh, it's a chilling, it's chilling in its relevance as you listen to the song. Like the lyrics are just absolutely spot on. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, you know, man. We've learned nothing. Um Yeah, I mean, men will feed you to the lions for having different thoughts or skin and when we realize that we've made a state to last a thousand years, our pleas for help will not be heard because there's no one left to hear the, hear cries, the cries as, as freedom, freedom dies. dies. Like yeah. just the way that goes into itself is like crazy. Yeah, 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 the the transition from the verse into oh. the chorus is yeah, superb. Again, you know, puns and wordplay just yeah, for sure. Uh so Uh, Let's move on then to track nine, Womb of the Worm.
I don't know if I could say this is actually my favorite track in the album, but it is up there. It is absolutely up there. Uh, it yep. is a doomy epic longest track on the album at like six and a half minutes or something like that. Um, about the evils of heroin as you do. Yep. Uh, but even the title there fits so well because you've got references in the lyrics to chasing the dragon. And of course, worm is another way to, you know, it, like was often dragons were called worms in uh, medieval literature. Uh, yep. but you've got the comfort of the womb, which heroin users, you know, will often describe that like, it feels like they're being wrapped up again in the womb when they're, uh, high, just, yeah, you know, everything about the lyrics and the music fits so well. Cause the music in this is so you've got that backwards guitar bit to intro it. And the whole thing yep. feels like it's a sort of never ending loop, uh, which of course is reinforced at the end when you get the, right. the repetition of the, the vocals and stuff. It, you know, the whole song thematically, every part of this song fits so well. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's one of my favorites because it just, it really sticks in your mind. Right. Absolutely. It just fits like, I mean, here we are at track number nine, right? So we just kind of joked about a second ago how the, the themes and the lyrics almost wear you down over the course of the album, right? And here we here we get to the song in song nine, where it's about, you know, people wanting an escape and then they find themselves, you know, addicted. Yeah. Yeah. This is also the only song with female vocals on it, interestingly. Um, yep. Which is a bit of a shame in a way because they fit really well. Uh, Super well. Maybe they just wouldn't have worked on the other songs, but they do fit really well here. Um, I... I would almost have put this as the last track on the album. If I was, you know, assembling this record, I might even have put this as the last track. Uh, just because, well, especially with the repeating at yeah, the end, you know, exactly. Cause you could just have that on a, on vinyl. You could literally have that on an infinite loop on the run out. Um, and even on CD, you know, you could have it run for like five minutes or something until people get tired and switch it off. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, just because it's so, I mean, it is different to the rest of the album, but thematically it does, musically, I mean, but thematically it does fit. And because it is this epic, yeah, it just kind of, it would have made an interesting end to the album. On the other hand, because it's so depressing, uh, I, I'm almost glad that it isn't, um, and that we do have uh, another track and that's track 10, The Truth Famine. <laughs> Which, I mean, not that this is an uplifting 
you know, <laughs> hope-filled. But, but musically, hey, it's take more this one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. From from a musical standpoint, it certainly is. Just don't read the lyrics. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, despite the, the angry lyrics, this is, musically at least, this is more energetic, a bit more upbeat, a bit more uplifting. Um, I love the way that it comes right in with a solo and the drums playing like almost yep. as if the song has been playing in the all along and you've just cut in halfway through, you know? Right. Or it's a song that everybody's heard before because now it's happening again somewhere else. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really good intro, especially after that sort of doomy repeating womb of the worm of the womb of a, you know, loop, which I love. Um, I mean, just the opening lyrics could basically tell you all you need to know. A red-letter day for our nowhere industrial town. A minister's heading this way. He's closing us down. But what of my daughter and what of my son? Just how will they live when the factory's gone? Yeah. I, and, yeah, just superb. I mean, that there encapsulates the worries of every working-class parent uh, in the whole of the north of England, pretty much at this at that time. Uh, but I yeah. think anywhere around the world. You know, there's God knows the Rust Belt and... Uh, you know, what's happening in Pennsylvania at the moment. And there's all around the world, I'm sure there are people who can relate to that lyric because it encapsulates that fear of uh, the working class being basically th- discarded and thrown on the scrap heap uh, by the Well, and just class. this one is the one that really got me. Election day promises now null and void. They'll never rest till we'll, till we're all unemployed. And it just like drives home the the, you know, fact of, well, we're bringing somebody new in and things hopefully will get better, right? And then the cycle just repeats itself. Yeah, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, do, yeah. do you know what a UB40 is, by the way? No. Okay. So have you heard of the band UB40? I absolutely have. Okay, right. So they, they were named after the UB40 was, uh, UB stands for unemployment book. Uh, UB40 was basically, if you were on the dole, if you were on, uh, if you were unemployed and on social security, it was uh, a sort of, yeah, a pamphlet. I say it's called a book, but I mean it's effectively a pamphlet that you know you took with you to the um, uh, back then. It would have been the DHSS, the Department of Health and Social Security, to basically get your unemployment benefit. Um, okay. So hence, UB40 is a book that you'll find very hard to put down because you won't be able to find any work. Um, but yeah, that's what UB40 were named after because they were all unemployed when they uh, started that band. And did you have to document in that book, like where you had tried to get a job and stuff like that? I, I think so. Yeah. I never had yeah. one. They'd phased out the UB40s by the time I got, you know, into the sort of job market as it were. So I'm I'm not entirely sure, but I think, yes, possibly it was kind of proof of you applying for jobs. Sure. Uh, but also proof that you were on social security and you were entitled to your benefits. Right. Um, on the cover of the album, you have to look really closely. You have to know what you're looking for. The character on the cover of the album, if you look on his knuckles, he's, he's got t- uh, knuckle tattoos that say DHSS. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, you really have to know what you're looking for to even recognize those letters. Uh, but yeah, but they are there. Absolutely. There's, there's say really good artwork. I, I can't remember who did it, but really good artwork on the cover of this. Um, so yeah. And that brings us to the end of this brilliant but horribly depressing album (laughs) yeah which in a way i mean just to go back to what i was saying when i first started in terms of the the sort of music clashing with the lyrical content i think that it's almost like the the coating on the pill (laughs) that you have to swallow to get to the like he's got a lot of stuff to say and if he puts it in 
you know, this, this musical pill, then maybe you'll listen to it, you know? And so it's, uh, yeah, it was an album that with each listen, I found more depth, right? which is, which is pretty rare, actually. I mean, there, usually you, you, it's the other way around, right? It, it, from a musical, from a lyrical standpoint, from a musical standpoint, I continue to find depth with albums that I listen to, but rarer for lyrically to continue to go deeper with each listen. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Yeah, because yeah, you're right. Sort of, you know, two or three listens in once you've sort of absorbed the lyrics of an album, you're generally, oh, okay, right. Well, I know what these lyrics are now. I know what they're about, um, you know. And then, as you say, you start looking for more depth in the music. Whereas these, yeah, they're so good and so multi-layered that oh my god, yeah, you just keep. It's really because every in. line is something for you to think about, yeah, and that's the rarity. That's the the level of depth that you is very rare. Where it's like there are no throwaway lyrics. Oh god, in no. these songs, no, no, every single word, every line, every syllable has been thought about. Um, yeah, to a large degree, and as I say, that's Valkyrie's genius. Uh, and yet, as I say, he unfortunately has never really received the recognition that I think he deserves for it, which is a great shame. But the other thing about this, I mean, we keep saying how depressing it is, and it is depressing, but it's also angry. And that's oh, for sure. That's one of the things that I do really like about it. And one of the things I sort of take from it is that, yes, it's pessimistic, but it's also, it is a rallying cry of like, you know, we shouldn't stand for this shit. We deserve better. Um don't let. Well, and the cool thing about that is he's like, you know, uh, let me give you another example. Like, it's the whole thing of like, I'm not just saying this one time. Right, right. I'm not just, I'm not just, you know, saying throw your fist in the air and let's stick it to the man. It's like, let me give you another example of how you're being screwed. And how about another? Do you believe me yet? Are you ready to do anything yet? Well, right. then listen to this and listen to this. And so it is this thing of like, you should be getting more upset and more angry over the course of the album and then uh, ready to do something about it. Right. Pointing out how it's systemic. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, like, mm-hmm. as you say, it, this isn't just one thing. This is the whole system. This is not an accident. It's deliberate. It's designed this way, um, which, you know, you can be depressed by, or yeah, you can get angry about and, you know, try and change things and do things, do something about it. So, uh Yeah. And that's it. That's like I say, this is one of my, I love this band. These three, the three albums that I named, I love all three of them, but this one, especially one of my favorite albums, uh, of the nineties, uh, an absolute kind of, because it's just so unique. Nothing else sounds like this before or since, even from this band, let alone from another band, um, which on the one hand is a shame, but on the other hand is kind of amazing that it is so unique and it's one of those kind of things that you know right time right place all the things coming together just so to make uh something that is greater than the sum of its parts well and i would argue you played into my theme for this uh volume of to in terms of respecting your elders because here's a band that clearly has had influence even though if it took some time for that to take hold in a band that was not given enough credit not that it's people due. should pay attention to at the right. time yeah yeah you're absolutely right yeah man anyway so uh let us move on from that then to da, 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 our selection of the uh listener choice album for next time i'm uh, excited because holy cow i mean we we i don't think we mentioned that at the beginning of the show but when you posted 
that uh, and talked about how it was time for people to vote. Never have I seen as many or as quickly posted responses to anything that we've done as when we open it up for people to vote on the album that we're going to talk about. It was absolutely nuts. Yeah. As you say, almost immediately after posting, uh, opening that thread, it just went crazy. You know, it, our inboxes exploded with notifications. Right. Cause we get an email notification <laughs> every time somebody posts and it's like, bing, 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 bing. Yeah. Absolutely nuts. Um, so we had 62 nominations. Holy moly. Yeah. Do we yeah. know how many? I, I mean, that's more than last time. Uh, oh, yes, it is. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. In fact, let me hang on. If you give me a moment, I will be able to tell you how many we had last time because I keep all I my mean, we shit. had a good we amount had last time. 32 last time. Which was pretty good. Right. And that was a lot. Yeah, this time we have 62. Hang on. Let's have a look at uh, volume two. Volume two, we had 30. Uh, and did we do one in volume one? No, we didn't, did we? I don't think no, so. Volume no. two was the first one. Yes, yeah. so we went thirty, thirty-two, and now sixty-two. Now, uh, several of those are multiple nominations for a single album. For example, we had five nominations for Gojira's Magma album. Um, uh huh. We all we had two nominations for Nightwish's Endless Forms, Most Beautiful, and we also had several uh, nominations for different albums by the same band, which I find fascinating, and I think really actually ties in really well with again everything that we do and we try to promote on this show like these are people who are such fans of this band that they want us to talk about one of their albums but then they choose different albums absolutely you know um just goes to show that even two fans of the same band who can be can have right, completely die different hard opinions. fans right yeah can have completely different opinions about which album yep. is best or more worth talking about so yeah i found that absolutely fascinating like let's have a look quick look uh celtic frost got Two nominations for different albums. Uh, so did High on Fire. So did Nevermore. So did oh no, Syrah. That was one two nominations for the same album. Oh, from Greg and David Richardson. So <laughs> thanks, guys. Um, uh, Tool got two nominations for different albums. Yeah, it's uh, it, uh, utterly intriguing. So uh, oh, I should video this, shouldn't I? So just so that people know, it's you know. That we're not um, faking it all. Yep. So let me just put, so we want a number between one and 62. Let me get my video thing up. Right. So, okay. Recording now, and I will post this on the Facebook group for people to see as well. There is the list. You can see it uh, together with some notes from people uh, about which versions of albums we should pick if theirs is chosen. Uh -huh. um, and here is random.org. Choosing a number between 1 and 62, go. And the result is 48. And line 48 is, I can't see through my phone, it is Royal Thunder, the album CVI. Uh, wow. In other words. I have not heard that album. 106. Uh, I have, actually. This is an album that I own. Um, but I will say that it's not an album that I listen to a lot. So yeah, that's going to be interesting. Have you even heard of Royal Thunder? I have, but I have not heard that album and I'm excited now. All right. Because I obviously a lot of the suggestions are albums that I have heard and certainly many of them I would love to talk about. But yes, uh, when it's coming from the listeners, I'm always excited to hear something I haven't heard before. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was chosen by Brian Kazmierski. Uh, so well done, Brian. You have got nice the nomination job. for this volume. Uh, I will also say to uh, 
some people, some of the people who nominated certain albums, uh, some of these albums we are almost certainly going to talk about anyway. Um, oh, yeah. you know, like for example, somebody who nominated Jim Jarrett nominated white zombies, Astro creep 2000. That's going to come up, you know, don't worry. That is going to come up. Um, yep. uh, what else? Celtic frost to Megatherion is almost certainly going to come up at some point. Maybe not this volume, but you know, it's another album that is almost certainly going to come up just because it is such a classic. Um, and if not the albums that they posted, definitely the bands. Right, right. Yeah, like there's uh, Scott Parker nominated Machine Head's The Blackening. I maybe won't choose The Blackening, but I probably will choose a Machine Head album at some point. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, uh, th- there is stuff on here that we will talk about uh, regardless. But yeah, well done, Brian. So next episode, we are going to talk about Royal Thunder's album. Like I say, I, it means 106, but it's Roman numerals. So CVI is the album that you're looking for if you want to do your homework. And I guess we'll see you then. We'll see you next time. Take care. Fresh in air.